Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. We are back from a short break as we have been working on some really big episodes. But in the meantime, we had the chance to sit down and speak with Michael Giacchino, the director of Marvel's Werewolf by Night, a super fun and spooky television special, which is streaming right now on Disney Plus in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, is perfect for the Halloween season. If you haven't watched it yet, I highly recommend it. It is unlike any other title in the Marvel MCU, as this one was done more in a classic Hollywood creature feature style, complete with excellent black and white cinematography, which they actually printed out to film, as we learned in the conversation. And of course, an incredible soundtrack, which we would expect from Mr. Giacchino, complete with a flaming tuba. And that all makes sense once you watch the film. And this is a good time to mention, we do discuss some spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't watched Werewolf by Night yet, you should hit pause, go over to Disney Plus, and do that before you resume listening to this episode. Now, as you may have noticed, Michael Giacchino has been on our show before, most recently talking about his work on The Batman, but always in his role as the film composer. Here he is making his directorial debut, so it was a great pleasure to sit down with him and talk about his work in this new role and how he balances that out with composing the music and working with his sound team. Joining him for today's discussion are some key members of the film's post-production team, including the film editor Jeff Ford, re-recording mixer Juan Peralta, supervising sound editor Josh Gold, and dialogue and ADR supervisor Chris Gridley. Maybe it's because Michael Giacchino is usually on the sound team, but as you will soon find out in this conversation, this creative group has just an amazing rapport and they all clearly really enjoy working with each other. And thankfully for us, that camaraderie definitely comes through in the conversation today. So let's jump in. Gentlemen, welcome to the Dolby uh, podcast. It's great to have you on to talk about Werewolf by Night. I really, um, I, I love this uh, special presentation, I think we're calling it. Um, so it was, it, was, it was great fun. Yeah, no, we had a blast doing it. I mean, we always just called it a movie. It was just like, that's what it was to us, you know. I uh, you know certainly Jeff and I, the whole time we were together in editorial, just, you know, special presentation was sort of the thing we were wrapping it up in at the end, I guess. But yeah. Short movie. One of the things that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast with filmmakers um, and their teams is kind of the, the the importance of the first ten minutes and how you set mood and tone and you establish the rules of the the road uh, for the world that you're building and how you kind of get the audience accustomed to the way you're going to tell this particular story. So I, I love the opening of this. It just made me kind of giddy from the very first. Like, I love that, you know, we talked about special, I love the special presentation credit, which took me right back to like all those TV specials from the 70s and 80s that I grew up on. It just made me kind of, it just, it just tickled me to start that way. And then of course, you're even having a lot of fun with the Marvel logo, putting a lot of new sound design and effects into it. And then we go into the black and white titles and the we start really the 1930s, film noir kind of classic horror aspect of it. So uh, Michael and Jeff, I would love for you to just kind of walk us through kind of how do you design that opening and sort of what you felt like you had to kind of impart to the audience in that first few minutes of the film. I mean, from, from my point of view, it was about just establishing from, from frame one that this is going to be different. This is not the usual thing because one of the struggles that we had in building this and is, um, Marvel fans are are accustomed to everything being connected to something. So it's like they 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 want this to be connected to Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, whatever, all of that stuff. And when it's not, it kind of throws them into a tizzy and they don't know what to do. So so part of our job was to create this opening that didn't even give you a chance to think about that. It was just kind of like one of those 1930s slap in the face sort of a things like, come on, get yourself together. We're going to we're going to watch something different. So the, 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 the sooner we could establish that feel, the better. And because we had we had other versions of it, which I'll let Jeff talk about. And, and, and they just never they never passed muster. 
Yeah, we had a different opening. You know, we had originally opened the movie on Gael's character. Uh, he was basically stealing a medallion that would allow him to have access to the to the rotunda room, and and sort of like you saw how he kind of got uh, a character. He was basically going to impersonate this guy and like sneak into this thing, and you didn't quite know why, but it was the idea was this is how he this is how he got on the trail of of going in there, and then he meets Laura Donnelly's character Elsa Bloodstone at the gate before they go in. So those two scenes were the original opening of the movie. And we found that, uh, you know, I l always liked the gate scene and thought it was, was really great. But, uh, but what we found was that the more we could launch him in to the, you know, to the story, Gael's character into the story and have like, you not have a lot to hang on to. And you're looking at what he's doing and you're looking at his behavior and looking at what he's looking at on the walls. and You're looking at how he responds to things. So all of a sudden he becomes, you're actually paying attention to him even more. And it, it becomes much more his point of view, and that's that. That was a that was a solution that helped us get people into the story quickly, but also to attach that point of view. And then the prologue that's, that that plays after these logos is, um, you know, Michael had this great idea that's like, let's show the Avengers and then pan off of them, and so you can tell the audience, hey, remember the Avengers? Don't worry about it. It's fine. This is another thing, and then and that's what you want. You want to basically go. They're not. They're not showing up, and and we're going to do this, and then the audience weirdly that allowed people to relax and pay attention to the to the story Michael is telling, as opposed to being where does this fit, and is you know, uh, you know, is Groot in it, you know, like we don't need that. We want to go. We wanted our own thing, so we were trying to basically carve that out. And I think we did. I was actually really, I was sort of, um, I was skeptical about that opening prologue thing, but this company Swarovski did these beautiful drawings and. Obviously, we have an incredible score that helps us get carry through it, and we did this voiceover, and so I think it, um, I think it actually worked pretty good. Well, you just like to set the scene, um, so we tried, we tried some sound, some exterior ambient sort of stuff on the, the wide shot, establishing shot, and then as you creep down that hallway, it just starts to get, um, get moody, as we get towards the rotunda, and the music really carries us through there. So. Yeah, I was I was curious about that because look, I, I know you know Michael. It was really important for you to like do as much practically as you could. So you built those huge sets, but I yeah. I presume it's I presume it's a lot of plywood and you know and a lot of you know, for yeah exactly. Yeah. But yeah. but you, but it sounds like you're in this concrete you know mausoleum. So oh yeah, why, no, they I, did this incredible job making it feel because it's really just made up of the foam packing from Amazon boxes, I think. You can't uh, lean on it. You don't want to lean on it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think, Juan, you can talk about the whole from mono to, to we, oh, yeah. you know, starting yeah. in mono and then widening yeah. it out as well. That That's was what something. I was going to say. Yeah, the um, just from the very beginning, uh, once after the special presentation logo goes through and that kind of gets you in the mood, you're like, whoa, this is different. This is old school. And then... Starting everything off mono, we started off with the music kind of mono, dialogue obviously mono. And then even during the Marvel logo, putting in those old 1930s like screeching screams with the claw scrapes on the logo itself, kind of tearing up the logo, um, all that stuff. It was just trying to set the mood of like, okay, this is completely different. This is completely old school. And um, so then what we ended up doing is... Um, starting off all mono as as we go through into the wide shot and then we start slowly opening it up bringing in the score wider 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 even the dialogue starting to get more fuller taking the futs off of it and everything and now we're in the movie so all that it, it's just like one straight shot right into the movie and opens up and and then uh one one thing that michael semanic did which i thought was brilliant was um once we got into the rotunda then the music opens up even just another step there and now you're just in it i uh, went out on twitter and i put out a, a call for some questions on social media and there were some uh, there were some good ones that came in so one of one of the questions that came in was from rory sherman and michael this is for you how did you separate being a director and a composer during the process were you thinking of score ideas when you were creating shots and working on the script yeah, for sure. Like you can't separate the two because everything is in my mind is like I, I'm looking at a scene and if I'm on set with an actor, I'm telling them, I'm explaining the tempo of the scene. This is how I feel. This is and I could even snap out like a tempo and just say this is how slow this is. This is how fast this is. 
you know, in terms so they could have a sense of what that uh, tone was going to be. Um, I remember when Kirk was um, Kirk, who played uh, uh, Jovan, uh, the the big you know burly hunter. <clears throat> he was creeping towards the to the bushes where Man Thing was hiding, and he was just kept going too fast. And I was like, "No, here's the steps. It's slow. Everything is slow, you know." And just so that was very helpful. And I even had some music that I had written that was I was working on that was going to be in the movie itself thematically, and and so I could play that for the actors as well, and and just have the sense of tone, so they'd be like, "Okay." get it immediately. It's like something weird about music. The moment you hear it, it puts you in a, in a place, you know? And, and so it was, it was nice to have that. So, and that, that helped me sort of figure out tones on set the entire shoot for, for it was always in my head for sure. Right. Well, I had a follow-up question on this, which is like, Michael, what is it like? What usually when you're composing, you know, you're working with the director, obviously, you know, sometimes the, the film editor has pretty strong uh, opinions about, about music and where music should go and how that should be. Uh, and so you have all these kind of forces that you're, that, you know, you're, you're collaborating with, but here you have total control as the director and the composer. So did, did that, did that open up any, uh, any, any, any fun opportunities for you? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it, it wasn't like a maniacal, like, uh, you know, grab at power. I don't think uh, it was, you know, and I, Jeff and I have done, you know, like five movies together uh, over the years. And we met on a film called The Family Stone, which was uh, written and directed by Tom Bazooka. And I, I trust Jeff implicitly with my life, uh, you know, in all of this and everything we do, because he has such great taste. He has such a great sense of music. He has such a great sense of tone and what type of music should be used in a scene. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a film where, you know, the editor will put in something and it's just absolutely 100% wrong, in my opinion. Uh, it's my opinion, of course. But I never got that with Jeff. And in fact, Jeff filled an incredibly important role on this because one of the things that I was worried about was I didn't have a director to sort of like bounce ideas off of. And uh, I was in this sort of Moon Knight situation where I was just going to be arguing with myself. And <laughs> I... Uh, and and so I was worried that I wouldn't wouldn't have that checks and balances, but Jeff completely provided that checks and balance. And and one of the things that I love about him and and I am this way with with him as well that we are just honest with each other always because it, 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 there's nothing to lose. We're just trying to make something great. So let's just be honest with each other. And and that that was like a um, a, a huge help to me during making the, this for sure. Yeah, that's nice of you. Just thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I, I would True. love to get your I, I would love to get your take on it because Jeff, I, you know, my, my experience of you is that you're a very shy, retiring person who doesn't really no doesn't, has a hard time expressing his opinions. No, I, I'm not. Listen, I, all I, I spent I've spent half my career asking Juan to lower the foley. That's all I can. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, he's about, there was this, this sort of rule that we have <clears throat> is that, and I, I think it's. It's something I actually, I've never really thought about it, but the first person to sort of articulate it for me is I did a movie with Michael Mann and he said to me, you know, no unconscious choices. You can't do it. You got to make conscious choices and especially with sound. And I think that uh, Michael does this with his composing. It's not, you, there is, if there's a piano there, it's not by accident. If there's, he may have discovered it should go there by accident, but it's not in there by accident because he's an editor. He's, he writes melodies, he writes themes, he writes uh, 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 you know, underscore and it, and it's all edited by him then. And then, and by the way, in terms of being a director, he's, he's been directing his whole career because he directs the orchestra. I mean, that, that's, that's a performance and that, and those people need direction and he's excellent at it. So I think one of the great things I love working with him because it's, uh, there are no unconscious choices in the composing and there are no unconscious choices in our sound design. If there's a, if there's a choice to be made, we have to know why we made it and, and be in control of it because it's important. It, it affects the content and what the audience is going to feel. It's part of the artistry of making the film. So, I mean, that's sort of one of the things that I think we share. And, and it was amazing. He was my music editor, basically. So we were, I was editing at his uh, studio. So he was next door in his studio. I had a room and then I'd cut, you send him cuts. He'd write, you know, sometimes he'd write a score. Sometimes he'd make temp for me. But I had like the world's greatest music together because the guy's also going to deliver the score. So I'm getting original material. I'm getting, you know, he's like, oh, look at this from Lost. And we put that in. And it's, just, <laughs> it's like it's an embarrassment of riches. And it was super fun. But it was also yeah, super fun. We really, we really did, 
you know, editorial and music were, re were really, um, you know, feeding off each other for ideas about transitions, about pacing, about, you know, how we would do it. So it was, it was a great way to go. Juan, Josh, Chris, I know like, uh, you know, often there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, a complicated relationship on the mixing stage with the composer and, and, and the music and trying to find the balance of that with a, with the sound design, obviously the power dynamic is a little different on this because your director is also your composer. Can, so can, you, can you talk about finding that balance in the mix? I mean, it wasn't hard to be honest because like Michael was, was very well from my point of view, he was in the director seat the whole time. He wasn't the composer and he was only the composer whenever there was, Oh, maybe there's a music edit that could happen here. Maybe we can change this one thing in the music. And then he would put on his composer hat and talk to the music editor, Steve Davis, they do that, they do the whole thing, then he'd go back, sit down, now he's a director again, you know, so it, it felt pretty seamless to me. Um, I didn't, you know, it was, and of course, you know, I've worked with Jeff's for many, many movies, and with Michael, actually. So it was more of a we were just having fun on this thing. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was well, like, that's what it should be, fun. right? That's what it should yeah, be. No, absolutely. Fun, right? And we're, we're having fun. Way. And I, 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 you know, I've been, I'm always on the dub stage for all the movies that Juan and I have worked on together. I'm, I will show up at the dub stage and, and be there. And it's never adversarial at all. It's always just a pleasure to be there. And I so revere the work that they do because it is so important to the, telling of the story. And it's, it's, it's just, I'm happy to take music out if it's not working. Like it, it's that level of fun that you're having where you're just, there's no, no, no ego about it at all. You know, it's just like, just want to make something. That is one of the things, one sensibilities are so unbelievably great when it comes to that, because I've, I've never, he is completely about storytelling. And when he needs to lay back for music, he does. He's artful with it. It's like, and you don't have to, it's not a note you give him. It just happens because Juan's mixing. Like that's why you get him is because he already understands what to do. And it's, it's, that's one of the things that's such a pleasure working with him. And and Michael Spanik too. It's like, these guys just know, it's like, you know, it's like, I, I make this analogy a lot, but it's like playing in a band. It's like everybody kind of has the thing that they do and they all kind of do it together and you all respond off each other. And eventually it all kind of just feels like one thing. And it's not easy to get that if everybody isn't in the same zone and the same vibe uh, creatively. And I've, I've been in situations where, where, where someone on the team feels like they're the front man and everyone else needs to fall behind them. And, right, right, right. and it's always a disaster. No, no, there's, yeah, we all have that. We all have that, that mix where we're like, wow. Yes. <laughs> I'd have to never, say, I've never been I'd, one, one for me. So. I'd have to say, from, from my perspective, it was one of the most equal um, playing field. Everybody was just pitching in ideas. It was collaborative. It was so fun and easy to work with everybody on this crew. And like you say, we were all putting in together to make the best film possible. And I think it was just, for me, it was a treat. I, I, it's been a while since I've had that much fun on a mixed stage. <laughs> Jeff, uh, I, you brought up uh, Michael Semantic. <clears throat> just want to acknowledge him as a, as a, a member of the team. And unfortunately, he couldn't. Uh, I think we should just acknowledge the fact that he decided not to show up. Let's <laughs> no, just do that. <laughs> you said it. I, I've been trying, seven years I've been trying to get him on the Dolby podcast. I thought today was going to be the day, but no, it turns out, turns out uh, he's busy doing something. But Juan, I just want to, I just want to make sure uh, that we clarify. So uh, was Michael on dialogue and music and you mix the effects? Exactly. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a Michael, and I, Michael and I have done a few movies together. And so we're, we have that rapport of like, okay, this is your music film and I'm going to step out of the way or I need your effects. Here we go. You know, so that helped a lot too. So for sure. Yeah. You guys are a great team. So uh, another question from Twitter, this came from Jacob Riley. Um, were there any sound effects from classic horror films that inspired werewolf at night? that you guys wanted to pay homage to or dress up for a contemporary audience? Josh, I'll let you. I mean, yeah. we did this, we did the sort of scream, the classic screams in the, in the intro. I mean, the, the, the K of the, the maze, we, we had talked about doing a bunch of horror, classic horror ish esque leaning, uh, weird sounds and winds and wind chimes and that side sort of stuff. the, the creatures we were sort of steering away from some of the classic werewolf werewolf stuff and trying to really connect it more towards the human side of of the 
of the character. So that I would say was le- it was less with the with the creatures. Yeah, um, I, I really love what you did with the werewolf, Josh. That was I mean, yeah. it's such a, it's such it's it has all the it has all the teeth, but it's not what you've heard before. It's really really a great fusion. Yeah, I agree. And talk and, and you did use some of those uh the the arcing effects from the right. the sparks and all that stuff, right? Talk about that. Right. So yeah, so many years ago Ben Burt recorded uh the machine, the strict fadden machine that made a lot of the electrical sounds that are used in lots of everything. They're used in everything now. So we were able to go back to those original source recordings um and use some of that for some of the electrical sounds and some of the magic and power power sort of stuff. So that was fun. Uh, thank you, Ben Burt. <laughs> we we all we all should be thanking Ben Burt. Um, yeah, there's. I, I I'm glad you teed that up. There's some sp- uh, specific uh, sound design moments that I want to ask you about. And we did get a, a question on Twitter about about the sound design of the Bloodstone and that whole effect and how you created that. So can you talk to us about that? The Bloodstone, I mean, to be honest, that was one that I was, when we talked about it and Michael talked about it in relationship to the music and that sort of, for sound design, that's sort of like a a terrifying concept when the composer, who's the director, who's the composer, is asking you for musical sounds to play with the orchestra. So that was a fun challenge. Um, And so a lot of that stuff came together. You know, we had, we had rough, I'd rough some things in and some of it was working, some of it wasn't working. And so a lot of that came together during the mix. Um, I used a, a, like a bowed glass recording was sort of the source. Um, and then tried to fo- follow the image, which was evolving as we, as we worked through the, through the mix and the music. To, uh, and I sort of did a performance with the sampler to try to give it a little shimmer in, in, in a shimmy um, to go along with to match the picture. Uh, we had a... a yeah, I mean, it was, it, we had to try to tune it to the music. And it, since it's not a pure tone, it sort of, sort of bumps, rubs up against the music sometimes. But I think because it's an evil, maybe not evil, but it's a powerful stone, uh, it was okay. And it helped us hear it that way. Yeah, they gave, it gave it a spooky atmosphere, which was really cool because it was just almost in line with what was happening musically, but just enough out to be like something's off. So, right. for sure. And yeah, then there was an idea to have it, kind of um, become more pleasant or um, soothing at the end when we transition back to color. But this, the, the, the music did everything there. <laughs> the music was all we needed there with the, with the uh, you know, you need near, Judy song Garland. near and dear to my heart as from Kansas. Uh, that song <laughs> took us out of the movie. So um, that was nice. <laughs> That's great. Uh, another scene, uh, another thing that kind of really stood out to me was um, the sound design of uh, Ulysses' uh, vocals uh, when he and when he gets, you know, when when he when he crank open the the coffin and he is delivering the big speech. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you approach the uh, the vocals uh, in that moment? Yeah. So that one it all evolved basically on the stage. Um, it was one of those things. Hey, let's get him so he sounds you know, as, as if he is a recording. And so I was on the stage and it's like, Oh, cool. I get to do some fun treatment. And, and so I put on the headphones and was under the headphones. And most of it is in relations to, I forget the Butler's name. He's cranking away on the wheel. And so I paced it with that timing with basically using pitch shifting and uh, a flanging plug in and just kind of morphed it from there. And then we all sat around and, and determined what words shouldn't be treated, which words should be treated. And it was an evolving process. And But the thing that was just absolutely fun for me is actually it flew on the first try. <laughs> so, uh, you know, usually I'm waiting for, okay, that kind of worked, but let's try something else. But, but Michael and Jeff both just like, yeah, that's it right on. So I just kind of kept working it. And then I, feed it a little bit more treatment as we were going through it. But, um, and then we kind of pulled some stuff out every now and then and finished product, I think works really well. Um, he's such a great character. <laughs> I just love him. Yeah. Too. Well, you, you gave him a voice. You, you made him a real character by doing that with his voice that really set him up as this 
Looney Tunes guy <laughs> who has just like, you know, converted himself into a, an, a Disneyland animatronic uh, at his own funeral. So, but I don't know that that would have landed as well as it did without that, the work on that voice, which I thought was, it, it, it was so cool and it sounded so neat. And I remember you're right. The first time we heard it, we were just like, <laughs> yes, yes, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, we do a little bit more. Yeah. We were always trying to solve the problem of like, people are like, they, they saw him cranking it, but it's like, is he really driving that? And like, what, how do we know? And we couldn't play the cranking too loud because he's talking. And then when we did this, all of a sudden it was like, oh, now I, now I get it. It's, he's driving, Swan's driving the whole thing with the crank. And, and it was, it was so, it was so funny. It was great. And then Michael did a really good futz on it too. And, and that kind of evolved a little bit as well. And yeah, it was just, again, so collaborative and fun. And it's rare that you get that on the stage sometimes. And, and this one all came together. Well, I think too, that like one of the things that I keep, you know, saying is like, we were there, like Michael, I had the director on the mix stage with the mixers. And that's something that I've always loved when I, as an editor, I like, I, I love being on the mix stage and I'm always on the mix stage because I'm addicted to it. But when I have my director that's there, that's so valuable because it creates this, it creates the same environment as on a set where somebody goes, what if we did this? No, what if we did that? What if we did? And that you needed that. And the fact that we were all in the room was, you know, it, it's such a different experience. So I, I really uh, encourage everybody who can and can ha to have the time to do it, take the time to do it. It's a huge part of your film. Yeah, no, no, I, it, it's, it's always one of my favorite parts is hanging out on the dub stage uh, and just seeing it all put together. And it's just, a, it's, and, and, it's in television, it's really not done, you know, that way. It's really kind of something that is just delivered and it is what it is in some, you know, you might be able to make some notes, but basically, you're, you know, so you're not as much a part of the process and in, in growing up in the, this industry as I did, the way you do it is go to the dub stage. So for this, when I was making this, I, I was sort of ignorant of the, of the fact that, oh no, this is uh, television, you don't get to do that. And I was like, no, we ha we have to do this. We have this is how you do this. You know how else? You know, I want to be there with them. And uh, that's your reward for all the hard work because you get to dub the movie. That's the yeah. No, yeah. I think <laughs> one of my uh, one of my favorite sound design elements in the show is is Ted. I love this character, Michael. I love that you brought this character into the MCU. Um, and I, I would love for you guys to talk about the approach uh, to the sound design of Ted because it's it's a very it's a very interesting challenge that you have with this character. You know, he's got to be terrifying, but at the same time, also very endearing. Yes. So, yeah, can you talk about that? No, that's that Ted to me. Like the way I always described him to people, the animators, to everyone we were working on the film was like, it's Jeff Bridges. Just thinking of think of him as Jeff Bridges. You know. He's just really chill. He's really cool. He's really sweet. You know, he's got a, you know, he's got a big presence, but he doesn't move around a lot. He's just there and he's just kind of a cool guy. He's someone you Wait, 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 wait. Je Jeff, Jeff Riches as the dude? Just, I, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We're just in general. You how, it's up to you. But to me, Jeff Riches always has this air of sort of just quiet dignity. And I love that, you know? And, and, and so I just kept pushing that whole thing for him um but the but i'll let you know josh first talk about the initial stuff he was working on for man thing and then there was a very important thing that happened late in the game with jeff ford which we'll get into as well which i think is hilarious so it's the best sure so so uh man thing started with a lot of sort of um sea ocean going mammal sounds let's say um so all that sort of grunty, grunty material. And, and, uh, it was always really important to keep it human. So we wanted to, we were always talking about having it syllabic and there was a conversation. It wasn't just like grunts. I mean, he was saying things, um, there's language there. Um, so that, and that's obviously a challenge. Uh, but we, we worked with, we did a, a bunch of back and forth. And once, once everybody was in the, up in the tech building, we were able to get in the same room and, and, play things and try different things. And then, um, yeah, there was some magical sauce that came in at the last minute that we'll let Jeff talk about, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I was just set this up because so <laughs> Jeff and I were having a conversation and we were talking with Josh and we were just like, there's still something that's conversational that I feel like it's missing something that feels conversational in, in some of these areas. And Jeff is just like, all right, leave the room, leave the room. I'm like, 
what do you mean? Leave the room. He goes, just leave the room. I'm going to do something and I don't want you to watch me. <laughs> I was just like, wait, really? I can't. He goes, get out, leave the room. So I was like, okay. So I left the room. I shut the door and I went back to the stage for a while. And now Jeff, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, we were, I mean, Josh's stuff is most of what's in the, in the picture. We just were struggling with this idea that, that Jack could understand Ted and that they, he could like read syllabic, you know, structures and go, Oh, that's what, you know, and, cause they have a conversation at the end of the movie. So I decided to try, let me just try something, which was, I'm going to improvise against, uh, Gael, what Gael's saying. I'm going to improvise what actually would be said. Like literally I'm going to respond, but I'm going to respond in a sort of, you know, I was sort of just picturing him as like, you know, again, like it's like in a very casual way, but, but, but responding. And then I just pitched it so far down that it was almost just noises um, and it ended up being, it ended up creating a little bit of a sing song back and forth between the two guys that, it, that I, we were missing. And so then Josh took that stuff and abstracted it more. So it wasn't just what I did, but it, I was able to, again, it's one of those things. It's like at some point, you know, you, you need performance of some kind, you, you need some kind of performance and, and even no matter how much you want to do that sort of thing. Um, it, it just requires that, that thing. And I, I didn't, I didn't intend for it to be me, but we were running out of time. <laughs> and, um, and Josh is able to take it and, and mutate it a bit so that it doesn't have it. But it, but it has the cadence. It has a comedy rhythm a bit at the end yeah. where he's, you know. And I think one of the things was, you know, he makes Jack laugh. And I was like, what would make Jack laugh? <laughs> and so the line that Man-Thing is saying is, she's just not into wolves. <laughs> for some reason if you can't understand it but that's 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 what makes him laugh and, I yeah. and it was great and it slid in perfectly with what josh had created too and he was able to meld those two ideas and and when you watch that scene it really does feel like they're talking to each other like they're having this conversation it's crazy that's amazing so jeff do you get sag residuals now because of that no, i sign my life away i don't have them but uh, I, I'm in all. I'm in a bunch of these things. Is I, I've, I've been never, never get the, never had a dinner, as that guy said. Um, <laughs> you're you're in the credits, so I am in the credits. No, it's all, it's all good. I I feel uh, honored to be part of that. So it's it's actually pretty cool. That's great. You guys touched on this earlier, but I'd love to dig into the sequence a little bit more. Uh, the the werewolf transformation. Um, I, I love I love that you know. It would have been so easy to be, have a big CGI moment and do the transformation on camera, but you went in a very different direction. And I'd love, Michael, for you to talk about kind of your approach to designing the that sequence and then what that kind of challenged, you know, Josh, uh, you on the, on the sound design side. The transformation for me was one of the first things, obviously, I was thinking of because I'm working on a werewolf movie and I was like, how am I going to do this in a way that is unique and different from everything we've seen. We've seen every great transformation known to man. It's already been done so many wonderful ways. Um, so what I started realizing was that scene isn't really about Jack, it's about Elsa. And once that clicked in, once I started like kind of finding that, I felt like, oh, that gave me freedom then to leave Jack behind in a way, to start off the transformation. We don't even need to see him. We could see his shadow on the wall behind her. And that it seems like that's the focus at first, but the camera just keeps pushing in. And, it's, and, and at some point we just lose sight of Jack almost altogether. And we're just on Elsa because this is her big like moment. She came here to change her life, to, to create a new path for herself. And well, that didn't work out. Now she's in a cage with a werewolf and I'm like, that sucks. So I wanted to be with her with that feeling, you know? of what, how that would feel. Um, <clears throat> but that was one of the very first shots designed. It took months to do because it was uh, 90, 97% in camera, that shot. Really? Uh, yes, it's all in camera. The only thing that does not exist in that shot for real are the bars, the cage bars. And the reason was because we had a projector as big as a Volkswagen on set, on set which was massive. And it was projecting the shadow transformation of Jack on the wall behind her. So the angle that that had to be at in order to make this work would have thrown the shadows of the bars across the other way, the other side of the room. So we removed the bars and said, we'll add those later. But everything else is all in camera. The shadow, everything else, it's Elsa, it's all there. 
Um, so that the flashing lights, all of it, it's like none of that was added later, which is great. And uh, and I think you can feel that when you watch these shots, you know, you you get the sense that, oh, this isn't some trickery and it allows your brain just to focus on what's important, which is the story, you know? Um, so it was a lot of fun doing those those particular shots. And then the sound was crazy. The 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 transformation sounds were were amazing. And and sort of Jeff is meticulous with what he does in his edit. Like he's very meticulous in lining up what he wants and, and how it should be. And then these geniuses take it and then make it a million times even better than that, as as good as it was. So um what one of my favorite parts in it is when you hear Jack, you you literally hear Gael struggling as he's starting to transform. And then slowly his voice sort of pitches down. And it's just like this cool thing. It, and what's beautiful about it is it's Gael's voice. It's not, you know, and then slowly then gets shifted into the monster sounds that Josh created. And it's just, I, I, I loved it. I thought it was one of those moments that just worked brilliantly sound wise. They just killed it. Well, I think the other thing too is that if you, that sequence is that whole sequence with the world, it has enormous dynamics. Like it goes from those really loud, intense things and then nothing and then a jump scare and then nothing and then a lot again. And those dynamics are so fun. And, and uh, I think sometimes people are like, well, if it's quiet, people will be bored. It's like, no, that's, 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 that makes them go what? And, you know, I think that was one of the, these, the way that that whole section was, was mixed was so beautiful because it, it did it does have enormous dynamics and and we we can we can jump scare and we but we can also really draw the audience in by by being minimal yeah because you're, you're truly using the sound to tell the story in the in that sense it's it's like a, a piece of classical music in a way that there, there are moments of bombast and then quiet you know and you're and that's what i loved about listening to classical music as a kid it was always telling a story you know you could imagine your own movie in your head and that's, I feel like both visually and sonically, this, this has a lot of that in it. Well, and having the image, the image of the transformation be the shadow really lets the audience create that in their head, just like you're saying. It's, it really is in your imagination. And I love, I love that about the sequence. That's why everyone always is like, the book was better than the movie. Because when they read the book, they imagined the greatest movie ever, you know? And you can't, you can't compete with your mind. And I feel like we're... So many times these days we spoon feed the audience everything, not allowing their brain to do the work that it that it that if it did, it, the experience would be a million times better. So, you know, I think we were really banking on, you know, part of it because we had to, you know, we had to make this thing in a box, but we relied on some of those old tricks, which has just allowed your brain to fill in the gaps. Uh, another question from Twitter. This is from uh, one of our old friends, Max Smith. He uh, he wrote in. I, I wanted to include this question because, as a former tuba player myself, I was deeply in love. Uh, and Mac wrote, "I want to hear the backstory about including uh, Tubatron and Werewolf by Night and the Flaming Tuba." Well, David Silverman is one of my best friends, and uh, we've been friends for a long time. And Actually, the first night I met him, he was playing that flaming tuba, and it was on someone's front lawn in Burbank on a December evening uh, at a at a at a at a Christmas party that they were that was being held for uh, the animation sort of industry, and uh, and I remember seeing that thing being, what the hell is that? And started talking to him, and then we became friends, and uh, you know, like I said, he's one of my best friends. So when this came about. I was in the, he was playing, he was in my backyard with the flaming tuba and one of the producers, Brad Winderbaum was over and we were just having like a barbecue, whatever. And David was playing and it was nighttime. And, and Brad turns to me and goes, we should put that in the movie. And I was just like, yeah, we should definitely put that in the movie. And Brad was like, I don't know how, I don't know why, you know, whatever, but that would be cool. I was like, yeah. So, so I thought that it would be great to have him be there as sort of a ceremonial to, uh, you know, the ceremony of leading someone into the, the hunting grounds. That felt like some, the use of fire, the use of a giant brass instrument, it just felt like it had history to it. And it felt like it was a ritual of some, some sort. And, and, uh, 
And when I asked David if he wanted to do, he was like, you know, David, David, he's up for anything all the time, anywhere. It doesn't matter. He'll just, you get through half your question and he'll just say yes, just because you know, it's good. He's going to say yes. So he is just like, yep. So next thing you know, he's in Atlanta doing night shoots with this thing. When we were shooting to like, you know, 630 in the morning, it was not, not easy. Uh, but it was, it was great. And it created such a beautiful image in the way that, the, especially then when we went to film with it too, it just created this glow. And this- it's, it's a total Fellini thing. You know, you give, it gives you that sort of crazy, absurdist thing. And then now, you know, there's probably Marvel people going, that's Kang or something. They're, they're like, who's the, who's the guy with the tuba? Yeah. <laughs> He's introducing yeah. a character. Yeah. They'll be like, oh God, we got to get, we got to put that guy in the Avengers now. Exactly. No, too much fun in the Avengers. <laughs> well, that's, that's the greatest thing about this whole thing is now that the the flaming tuba guy is, is now in the, part of the MCU. So that is the crazy. <laughs> that's what's hilarious about this. <laughs> well, and I feel Michael like it, that also inspired a really cool music cue for you. Yeah, and you know, and it, that evolved because at first I was going to have him play this old like sea shanty called "Asleep in the Deep," which was you know written in like the eighteen hundreds or something, and it's I love it. And I thought that'd be a really weird sort of disconcerting thing to do, marching towards doom, but playing this she's this 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 like sort of lament uh, of someone who had, who died while they were at sea, and uh, but it ended up not working. And I found that that the the better thing to do was just just hit those low notes, just hit the low notes, boom, and then it could feel like some sort of ritualistic weird foghorn or something that just was announcing that this is happening, you know, and and the repetitiveness of that, it's one of those things that gets under your skin. You're just like, oh my God, when is this going to end? Kind of a, a feeling, which which really which really helped. But so that when we shot it, he was playing actually that tune. But then when we went back and redid it, we we cut it, and so that we could do just those repetitive things. Which was, uh, but again, it's a, the, the, you you don't know those things until you try them and see how it's going to go. You know, and and by the way, David Silverman. Just should be mentioned that he he's was like the first hire on The Simpsons. He's been working on The Simpsons since day one as a director, as a producer, as a consultant, as a, as everything. He is sort of like the reason that one of the reasons that The Simpsons are what they are is in large part due to David. So look him up. Um, Juan, a uh, question for you. So uh, for those uh, folks at who have uh, Dolby Atmos systems at home. Uh, talk to us about the uh, the mix and what are some what are some great Atmos moments in the mix? We were talking about dynamics uh, earlier and how when we get from loud to quiet, loud, which is like getting quiet is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I, I would say that during the um, werewolf escape, there's a he's flying, he's jumping around the room. He's you know where is he? All that stuff. He jumps on the cage. The cage rattles. All that stuff is all like in the ceiling and all around us, the resonance of the bars. And then um, in the fighting, um, you know, Michael was panning all the guards getting thrown all over the rooms and like sliding and all that stuff. So we were panning fully into the surrounds, we're panning dialogue into the surrounds. You know, it was just a whole thing. And, and the great thing about it was we only chose those sections that needed to be like anything, everything else. Try to keep it simple. Try to keep it, you know, in the in the mood of the movie. And then when the action sequences, that's when we were able to go have fun and play around and pan and move stuff around. And Michael, you did some, you did some really great stuff too. One with the environments in that maze. I like. I love how you spread oh, yeah. out. It's all around you, and there's like frogs and stuff. And it and you the way you blew that out was it just created such this width. It was incredible. Yeah. So when Gael is walking through the maze, he, he you know, it's it's a he's just kind of looking around and stuff, but we took, Josh gave me all those little pieces I needed. So if he looks over there, put the sound over there. If he looks over this way, put a sound over there, you know? So we were kind of putting it all around us, moving it all around. That's where all that Atmos fun really came into play. Yeah. Was that a fun tool, Michael, for you to work with having a Atmos uh, on the, on the stage? Oh, absolutely. Because it, 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 it felt truly theatrical, you know what I mean? Like it, it, in the best way possible. And, and, uh, I, you know, what I love about the whole team was everyone was treating this as if this was a theatrical release. Like we never thought of it as anything less than that. And, uh, and because of that, I think, you know, when you, when you sit in a theater and listen to this, or if you sit at home and you have a great system and you listen to this, you're going to feel that. It just, just gives you this energy that's 
that's not often a part of television viewing, you know, which, which I'm very thankful for. I love the end of the film. It's a beautiful moment. I love how you kind of invert the Wizard of Oz. I love the way, you know, you mentioned the Judy Garland uh, uh, somewhere over the rainbow tune. And then, of course, you go to color. And it's just so playful. I mean, I love I love that, at, you know, Ted uses a French press because, of course, you know, <laughs> that's the way that's the way you make coffee. But I, so, I would love for you to talk about how you decided to end the film in that way and sort of uh, how that end sequence came together. Oh, that came together very late in the game. Very late. We had the whole time we were shooting, any moment we weren't shooting, we were saying, what are we going to do for the end? We don't have an ending, you know? And I remember it was Jeff that kept saying, there's no ending here, people. We don't have an ending, <laughs> you know? Uh, and and the ending we did have was, it was fine, but it wasn't satisfying, you it know? <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't fine. It was like, it, it was, it would have been like something just stopped. Um, so we sat and we thought of, all these different things we could try and do. And it evolved into this thing. And really in talking with Gael about it, Gael gave a lot of great ideas too, about what that scene could be, you know, in his mind, he was thinking like, okay, I turn into a werewolf man. Thing's going to have to chase me around for a few days because like, and it's going to be like a guy who's on a bender, you know, and trying to, trying to drag his friend back home so that he can take care of him, you know? And, and so that was his perspective on it. And I, I thought that was great. And, and it was so last minute that all the prop guys were like coming up and going, all right, here's a bunch of stuff. What do you want? And I was just like that, 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 put that there, put this over there. Right in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Put the payphone over there, like all this weird stuff. And they're like, okay, um, putting it all, all, you know, and it was literally a very um, quick. And we went scouting the day before for that thing for that i forget I, you know that's literally behind it's on a on a on a small little run of grass at trillis studios behind one of the sound stages it's it, it, you know it's like if if you looked just a hair to the right there'd be a giant building with a bunch of cars and a bunch of people standing around uh but the way we were able to frame it it made it feel like it was out in the middle of nowhere um but it's really that rapport i think what what makes that scene work perfectly is the rapport they have. And this goes back to the to the sound work of what they did with Man Thing and what, what Jeff added vocally and then what Josh took and added everything he did and and then and then uh everyone just sort of putting that in the space and it just made it feel like they were just friends, you know, and they're just buddies and the way they sort of annoyed with each other a little bit, but also love each other. Like that felt very real. And that's that's because of the sound, you know, that's that's all because of that. And you you really get that feeling. Well, guys, those that that's uh, all the questions that I had for you. Any uh, any other points uh, you want to get across before we wrap up? I just I just want to say before you go, Chris, this was a Michael Semantic isn't here. I just want to <laughs> say. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris, go for it. <laughs> I ex actually have a question. Oh, um, you guys made a film print. I never got to see the film print. I assume you've seen the film print. Were you happy with it? And uh, yes. are we ever going to get to see a film print? <laughs> up where yes, we uh, I'm. I was thrilled with it. It, it's, it looks amazing, and and we've now shown it around LA in a, at a few theaters. Um, showing it tonight at AFI on 35 millimeter, and it just it's like you're watching it, and you're just like you honestly feel transported back to being a kid when you're sitting in a movie theater. Like just it, like we're so used to now nothing moving on the screen. Everything is so perfectly still because it's all digital and just like solid. Uh, and this has this sort of like, it's the jitter that you you remember from being a kid. It has everything. And it's just, I literally thought I was back at the Fox Theater in my hometown uh, watching, you know, any number of the movies that I did uh, every weekend there. And it just was such a great feeling. So, so but very know. important question. Did you make sure that you lined up the real breaks so that you get to keep the changeover marks that you put into the, into the film? Those are all real. Yeah. 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 They're actually real. The, the, the real changes, you know, I mean, when we first did them, of course, they were for us to do as a, as for fun, you know, but uh, they were nerd, nerd in, you know, things, but, they actually became useful because we went out when we went out to film, then you had to have them. So, and it's great to see them. It's really great to see those things. That's the other thing when you're sitting there, you're just like, Oh man, this is so fun. And I loved how many people called those out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Everyone noticed those. Yeah. And not only that, Glenn, we, I mean, talk about uh, going back in time. We had to 
create an Atmos print master. We created a seven one, we created a five one. Then we had to do a Disney plus spec for Atmos and a Disney plus for five one. And then we had to do a film print. So dust off the old Dolby equipment. <laughs> Get the Dolby guy in. We're literally like, um, does this thing going to work? I think so. We'll try it, you know? And, you know, yeah. And was it, was, was it, was it Dan Sperry? And was he sitting in the back sta- back of the stage with his arms folded over his chest? Going, That's not going to go to optical. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it was, yeah. You know, we had to be, it was like total old school, like making sure you're not over, making sure you're staying within the limits. And yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> very interesting. You know, when mixers actually had to, you know, yeah, yeah. keep some headroom, like be contained exactly. about the whole thing. <laughs> That's yep. great. Yep. I'd love to see that film print. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. It exists. We have it. We can set up screenings. You know? We can That's do great. it. I can show that well, the Dolby uh, offices, whatever, wherever. I, we will set that up, believe me. All right. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about our Werewolf by Knife. It's, I, you know, again, I love this. Uh, I love the movie. It's really it's so much fun. And I'll just say, Michael, like the interview, you know, you, this is your second appearance on the Dolby podcast this year. But the, in my conversations with you, it just seems like everybody's having so damn much fun every time, every time they work with you. Uh, it just seems like you, you have a, a great sense of, of fun and playfulness on, on your sets and, and on your, with your crews. So, yeah, I mean, look, what we do is hard enough already to not also enjoy it at the same time as sort of like, why would you do that? So I, I, we do this because we love it. Like nobody does this because they have to do it. Although some people in this business do, and that's miserable. But I think that the, the, us, this, the people on, on, on that you see here, we love this so much and, and that should come through. And I think it does. You know, I think you see that, that fun in the end result of what we deliver. So if it's not fun, who wants to do it? Not me. <laughs> Michael, Jeff, Juan, Josh, Chris, thanks for uh, joining us today to talk about the show. It's a real pleasure. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you to Michael, Jeff, Juan, Josh, and Chris for joining us today. And thank you to our friends at Marvel and Disney for helping us put this episode together. As you can imagine, it's always difficult to wrangle everybody's schedules, uh, but it was great to have everybody on the show. As I mentioned up top, Marvel's Werewolf by Night is available now on Disney+, Plus, where it is streaming in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. We will have a link to that, as always, in our show notes. But before you go, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. As I mentioned before, we have some big episodes coming up, including a blockbuster episode about Pixar's mind-blowing editorial process that you will not want to miss. You can find links to our show and all of the major podcasting platforms in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This is Sound and Image Lab brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.